0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by Ellen LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. So sometimes in life, we come through a situation where you're faced with either a step-parent or a step-child. It's something that apparently is very common, which I actually didn't know how common it was. Um, So today, to talk about it a little bit more, we're going to be talking into how to make a second marriage work. And to guide us through the process and to help us understand this a little bit more is Dr. Caroline Sanner. How are you going today, Caroline? I'm doing well how are you i'm very good it's very early this morning and it's um i've had so much coffee to keep me awake already so it's it's insane (laughs) well i am uh it's late here in the u.s but i'm really happy to be here today okay perfect i'm really excited for you to be here as well um i think i've said in previous episodes how this is a very specific topic to me and how i'm so excited to talk about this um when it comes to step parents and step siblings and all those situations how common it really is and it's it's crazy how common it actually is in today's society
1: very common um i think both in the u.s and in australia the statistics are about one in ten children are raised in step families um (laughs) So, it's a very common family form, and it's also a family form that's been around for a really long time. It's not a modern family form, even though that's kind of a popular um, myth that all of a sudden step families are on the radar. So, I'm excited to talk more um, about step family life, but you're right, it's a super common family form, no question.
0: So, can you talk about how you got into studying this? Is it more of a passion project that sort of t- turned into a career? Yes
1: is the short answer. Okay. <laughs> um most people who do research in some ways are studying some personal interest up there, is right? There's a phrase that all all research is me search that we're yeah. essentially <laughs> researching ourselves. I myself was raised in a step family. My parents are divorced and remarried and redivorced. There's a lot of family transition. Mm-hmm. Um and I grew up with really different models in different households of step family life. Um, I had my, in my dad's second marriage, an example of a really um, foundational to my own life, incredibly important and stable step family model. And then in another step family household that I grew up in, there was a lot of uh, turbulence. And that was a, a remarriage that essentially ended in re And so I've had a lot of exposure to different examples of step family life. And that got me really curious professionally to study the context and the processes that contribute to healthy or less than healthy
0: family dynamics. Wow. It's, it's how often does sort of the changes in dynamics occur? Because like you said, there's different influences of different families. And so the constant changing of that was that something that was different to sort of slip back into between two different families?
1: Oh Yeah, that's a good question. Probably like any child, you don't realize that it's normal or abnormal because it's all that you know, right? <laughs> and so you kind of adjust to, to those transitions. But um, looking back, and now that I study it professionally, it really is interesting to see how um, the step family households that I grew up in were so different in so many ways. Um, and ultimately, I think it just made me very curious about why that was. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably felt it at the time, but didn't have the language
0: until much later to really uh, look into that more deeply. Wow. that's It's very interesting how you talk about the me research, me turned into research. And I think that was the quote, research is essentially me-search and i think like that is i'm going to highlight that as quote of the day <laughs> cuz that is that is very interesting to me so while we're on the topic of you and sort of how you got into this we're going to do a little icebreaker game that we love to start with every guest that comes on it's sort of a get to know you kind of thing so when i say these phrases just say the first thing that comes to your mind great okay So the first one is your favorite book. My favorite
1: book is probably Sex at Dawn, which is a book by Ryan and Jetha that essentially explores our prehistoric ancestors organization of family life. Um, So the full title is something like Sex at Dawn, how we mate, why we stray, and what it means for our modern relationships. Um, But more than that, it really is A historical examination of how the ways in which humans have formed families um, is really different from what we often think that it is. Mm -hmm. And so there's another book that is similar to that. It's called The Way We Never Were by Stephanie Koons. And that book also comes to mind for me because that's also a historical analysis of families. And we have often this nostalgia for like, the traditional family era. And that book really challenges the extent to which that ever actually existed. And so uh, both of those books challenge a lot of what we think we know about families from a historical perspective. Um, So I would say those two come to mind immediately.
0: Wow. That's those are very interesting and very in-depth topics as well. It's definitely not in a quick read kind of book. That's right, neither of them. <laughs> they were tense, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one is your favorite movie.
1: My favorite movie, because we're talking about step families, I have to say the movie Stepmom, which mm-hmm. stars um, Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon as the mom and stepmom in, in a family that's undergone divorce and remarriage. Um, it's fabulous. I love that movie and all that it represents in terms of the real things that families go through when they're divorcing and remarrying. And I think it shows everyone's perspective, mom's perspective, dad's perspective, stepmom's perspective, the children's perspectives, um, and shows the complexity for for what it really is. So I love that movie, it's excellent.
0: No, I, I definitely agree. I love how they show the different areas and the different ways that a relationship can be built. Yes. as well. So it's, I, I love that movie. It's probably one I watch once a year because I get so teary that I have to really, really make sure that I'm not getting affected by it or have anything up next day.
1: Oh, I love that you've seen it multiple times. So have I. And I don't know how popular that movie even is, but it's more popular than I thought, I guess. I love that you've also seen it.
0: Okay, perfect. Because um, the next one is your favorite podcast. I listen to a lot of
1: podcasts. My favorites are probably one titled All My Relations, which is a podcast about indigeneity and indigenous um, communities and family life and really explores our relationships to our ancestors, to each other, to the land. And so in that is a way of thinking about family that I tend to apply to my research about how we're interconnected in ways that might be complicated, but that are also really beautiful. And so I love, I love that podcast. I also love the Ezra Klein show, which is a a podcast that explores a whole host of um, topics. And a lot of my more recent interests um, are gleaned from that show. So that's another, another go-to for me.
0: Well it's very interesting how how much it is influenced by the different understandings of people and how they make a sh- how they make a show just on that as well yeah so the next one is your famous role model of yours
1: that's a little tricky for me but the f- person who comes to mind is Ada Limon, who is the U.S. poet laureate, and I came into her work relatively recently, so I don't know that I have a all-time famous role model um, who I think of instantly, but she's certainly who I'm thinking of right now. She is, um, she's a poet, and as a poet, she's incredibly perceptive to and curious about the world around her. And as a scientist, right, I try to not take the world around me for granted, but to question it and to name those invisible dynamics, for example, those in family life. And so, um, yeah, her work really makes me stay open and curious. I think there's a lot to be learned from thinkers and writers who are curious about the world around them.
0: It seems like another personal project of hers that turned turned into what she does for a living. So that's another. I
1: think that's right. And she also comes from family complexity. So she has wow. beautiful poetry about, about divorce and step family life. And so I'm sure subconsciously that is, you know,
0: what resonated with me as well. Well, oh, that sounds like a really interesting, interesting person as well. Uh, the last one is a favorite course of yours that you've completed. In my graduate studies,
1: um, I took a lot of courses on gender in families. And so, anything pertaining to gender dynamics and families has been a home of mine um i majored in family science and pursued my phd in family science more broadly but i minored in gender women and gender studies and so i'm really interested in how gender comes into play in divorce and remarriage um so all of my classes about that were probably my favorite
0: oh wow i think it's amazing how much it sort of made, made, created your whole life and sort of really took over into its own little, little genre of its own in your head. That's right. Yeah. It did. <laughs> so this brings us to what we're talking about today, which is remarriage and sort of the how to make a second family work and second marriage work um, to start off with. I know everyone has their own very different definition of family. Um to you what does family what is family defined as? It's a great
1: question, but I think family is in the eye of the beholder, right? We tend to readily recognize family by blood or family by marriage, but Most of us also have family by choice, people who we wouldn't technically consider family in a biological or legal sense, but who we consider family nonetheless. And I think too that there is no universal definition of family because of course we know that family has looked so differently across history and across cultures um, in terms of how people have organized family life. And the sex at dawn book that I mentioned, right, really maps some of that. So our all evidence points to our prehistoric ancestors having lived in communal societies in which everything from food to child rearing was shared and so adults would have had several ongoing romantic relationships at any given time. Mm-hmm. And these practices obscured paternity in a a way that bonded um, communities in ways that made sure all adults were equally invested in all children um, and the rearing of their young. And so all of that to say family complexity um, is, I think, the reality of our species and so in many ways the complex family forms that we see today families formed and reformed by divorce and remarriage and redivorce divorce um, these complex kinship structures that we see are in some ways a return i think to our the family form of our collective past and so there's so much diversity and fluidity in terms of how we think of family it's very hard to define it it's one of those very ambiguous Certainly we have definitions provided by the census that help track family, you know, mostly we're talking about households when we talk about it from a census perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are those definitions, but those usually don't capture our personal definitions, right, of what
0: family looks like and means to us. Yeah, I think especially when it comes to the legal sense as well. When you talk about family, you say, okay, it's you're married to this person, that's your family, and that's sort of who they count as family. Whereas, like a lot of people, like you say, personal ways, you could see friends as family, you could see so many different people that's not really blood related as family members, and it's it's really interesting how everyone has their own definition. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yes. In my classes, I try
1: and have my, my students um, do an exercise where they have to define family, mm-hmm. pretend like they're writing a definition for a textbook. And how, how would you define family? And it's hard, right? They come up with lovely and beautiful definitions. But usually where people ultimately end up is the idea of, well, sure, family could be those we live with. It could be those we're biologically or legally related to or the families we were raised in. But usually when we think of family, we're thinking of something so much bigger, you know, affection and love and support. Um, and so that makes defining family so expansive.
0: Yeah. And I think the ideology of family is very much someone there to support you and to be a part of your life. So sometimes that you don't get from blood relatives. So you separate the blood relatives from family as well absolutely so what do you think the position of a family holds in today's society
1: yeah I think that contrary to narratives about the decline of the family right or mm. um they the decline in traditional family values, for example. We hear a lot of of these ideas, but I think it's undeniable that families fulfill many important functions in society, arguably more so than they ever have. I mean, families are responsible for a host of things that society relies on them to be responsible for, right? Mm -hmm. Things like reproducing and socializing children, teaching the rules and and the expectations and the culture of society. economic cooperation, right? Families are generally responsible for providing its members with food and shelter and clothing um, and certainly care and and warmth and intimacy. I mean, providing support um, to family members, caring for aging family members, right? We see that um, the lifespan is greater today than, you know, at other points in history. And so the increased longevity of um human life means that well who's responsible for caring for the elderly right and and the often that falls to families i mean the less support for example that a government provides in fulfilling these needs the more important that families are in in providing these services and so uh families are incredibly important to the fabric of society
0: so do you think it holds a very different way to what it used to do sort of like 10 or 20 years ago like the whole idea of family is very different to what we understand it now Uh, i don't think it's changed as much as we might think Mm -hmm. i think that
1: um families are still responsible for providing basic needs in ways that they always have been um in other eras when the economic production of society happened on like a family farm or within a family business for example families were still responsible for um for economic cooperation and for providing its family members with basic needs today we see you know work life balance looks really differently but families nonetheless are still responsible for fulfilling those needs um so i think the way that it looks has changed but i think in terms of what Families fundamentally do for their members has has not changed as much, although it looks very different. But at the core, I think it's the same. Okay,
0: so going into talking about step families and sort of remarriage, how would you define a remarriage situation? Sure.
1: Well, a remarriage is a marriage in which one or both partners have previously married and divorced, um, but When we talk about remarriage, we're usually talking about stepfamilies, right? Mm -hmm. Stepfamilies are those in which one or both adults have children from a prior relationship. And so remarriages don't necessarily involve children, for example, and stepfamilies don't necessarily involve remarriage. Mm -hmm. You could have a couple who divorced without children and then remarried someone without children and that remarriage would resemble a first marriage, presumably because it doesn't involve the merging of two family systems with kids, for instance, mm-hmm. um, step-families, right. May or may not be remarried. So some step-families are first married families. If someone had children, but wasn't married to their children's part, uh, children's other parent and then they marry for the first time, but they have children from a prior union, right? Then it would be a first married step family. And of course, step families can exist outside the context of marriage altogether. You could have two people living with one another um, who aren't married, but who both have children from prior unions, and we would call that a cohabiting step family. Um, So my work tends to focus on step families, assuming that there are children involved um, or that there are children living in the household. And most remarriages do include stepchildren. About two thirds of remarriages include children from a prior union. Um, So when we talk about remarriage, if we're talking about children being involved, um, then I often frame it as stepfamily dynamics, um, recognizing that stepfamilies are those in which there are children.
0: Okay. So there is a huge difference between a step family and just a normal remarriage. Okay. It's, it's very interesting because when you always, especially in the way that you define, that people usually define remarriage is that it includes, it has a sort of, it doesn't really talk about the difference between, okay, this is when with children, they just talk about remarriage as a whole and they sort of, it's under the umbrella of step families whereas it's it's a completely different situation in some cases.
1: Mhm. That's right. And I think that people who are remarried who don't have kids probably don't call their second marriage a remarriage. I do think we tend to use that language assuming that there are children involved, right? Yeah. Um but yeah, there's so much variability in terms of what remarriages could look like or what step families could look like. That some step families are remarried, but some of them are some of them are first married which is also interesting
0: yeah it is it is very interesting how in-depth it can get and how um definitions are very very different and like the label of it is very different as well
1: yeah yeah and I think maybe part of it has to do with the term step families I've seen a an aversion to identifying as a step-family in part because of negative stereotypes or myths about step-families that um that people might shy away from and so I think that part of our um tendency to term or to claim remarriage over claiming step-family as a family identity might have to do with some of those stereotypes okay
0: now is there a difference in people's situations between a first marriage and a second marriage
1: so this assuming that the second marriage has children and the first one doesn't right um there are certainly differences probably the biggest one being that in a remarriage uh with children so in a step family the parent-child relationship predates the spousal relationship, right? In a first married family without kids, a couple has time to gradually get to know one another and establish ways of interacting and communicating and establishing traditions and rituals and then bringing children into the family, right? With that foundation present. And in a step family, you are merging two family systems that probably have really different histories, different ways of relating to each other and communicating and interacting different traditions. Um, and so you have a lack of shared history that can sometimes cause conflict because you're kind of thrust into this ongoing system of, of child rearing, especially for, you know, couples who are, um, who are remarrying and have children from prior unions. They're having to figure out a lot in real time, whereas first married couples have time to gradually develop those dynamics before introducing kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that the parent-child relationship is longer in remarried step families than the spousal relationship introduces a really interesting dynamic because the parent and child has more shared history with one another, right? Yeah. Um, that's different in first married families, and that can. Create a host of possible dynamics, such as step parents feeling like outsiders to the parent child relationship, right? Um, parents feeling possibly, especially if their child and their new spouse doesn't get along, and there's conflict between step parents and stepchildren, then the parent is in a really interesting potential loyalty bind where they feel torn between their child and their spouse, right? And so those dynamics are heightened. Certainly there's the possibility of loyalty binds in first married families, but step families or remarried families are especially vulnerable to those loyalty binds. Mm
0: -hmm. And so with the understanding of the sort of traditional family structure, the change when introducing another figure is there is there a huge change to introducing sort of that another parental figure, whether it's um, whether they're parental or not? Mm. Tell me more what you mean. So, for example, if introducing a new person into a child's into the children's life, into sort of the family dynamic that already exists, is there a huge change that sort of occurs when introducing that person in? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, it depends
1: on a lot of factors. Um, so for for example, how young children are when a step parent comes into the family can shape things differently. So younger children tend to be more receptive to new step parents coming into the family system. Um, younger children, generally have fewer memories of their parents being together. And so having a new step-parent might be less upsetting or less threatening. Adolescents or older children who have more memories of their parents having been married and having separated tend to be more resistant to step-parents entering the family system. So how smooth or difficult it is can depend on things like the ages of the children. Um, And also how quickly or gradually it happens in terms of introducing a new adult or a new parent figure into the family. Um, When it happens suddenly, Mm -hmm. it tends to be more of a shock to the family system, especially from children's perspectives, than when that introduction happens slowly and gradually um, in the way that it would if you were introducing a friend slowly to a family over time. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of different factors that can shape how um much of an impact the introduction of a stepparent figure has on the family dynamic
0: okay now talking a bit more about sort of the second marriage and sort of the second relationship that exists in the family structure is there a difference in how people approach a first marriage to a second marriage
1: I don't know that there's much difference I think that often there tends to be a lack of communication for both first marriages and second marriages in terms of things like parenting philosophies, right? Are we on the same page about how we're going to raise our kids? There's evidence that that doesn't happen as often as we might like it to happen in first married families. It also is not extremely likely to happen before remarriages. But the consequences of that arguably are greater for second marriages or step families, right? Mm-hmm. If you are um, merging two families and you haven't had conversations about, well, who is in charge of which parenting tasks? What role are you going to serve in my kids' lives? What role am I going to serve in your kids' lives, right? Are you going to be. Um, An authority figure, do you have disciplinary authority? Are you allowed to discipline my kids? Am I allowed to discipline yours? How do we feel about that? Um, Do I want you being a parent figure or should you be more of a friend to my kids, right? Like these are really important conversations to have before a remarriage. Um, And they tend to not happen very often. When they do happen and when couples are on the same page about these things, it puts them at lower risk for divorce. But when those conversations don't happen... Um, it can put people at risk for for um, dissatisfaction and dissolution. So it's not that people necessarily approach a second marriage differently, but not having those conversations is even more consequential within a second marriage, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. No, it does. Um, yeah. I also think that there can be a false optimism. Mm -hmm. And here's what I mean by that. Um, people who have divorced and are remarrying, having already gone through it once, tend to feel more confident going into their second marriage. Um, and if we assume that it will be, um, smooth sailing because we've learned so much from our first marriage and the second one surely is going to work out yeah then we can sometimes approach it with unrealistic expectations so we have to brace ourselves for what's to come and having unrealistic expectations can also set us up for a lot of disappointment and possibly um divorce so the importance of of approaching it cautiously and with a lot of communication is even more important i would say going into a second marriage
0: So it's sort of like you go in with experience, but somehow you don't think that you've learned a lesson or you've learned something from it.
1: Right, right. I think that um, that experience can certainly help us. And I think that also what we know is that remarriages are more likely to end in divorce than first marriages. So the divorce rate for a second marriage is higher than for a first marriage. Mm -hmm. And that can be surprising to some folks because... Often people think, having learned so much from the first go around, that they'll approach the second one really differently, but we do see higher divorce rates for second marriages. And so I think it's good to feel that we have experience coming out of our first marriage that can help us in our second one, but it is important to be realistic about the challenges that we will encounter and to normalize those challenges. It doesn't mean that something's wrong or that you've made the wrong decision in in choosing to blend your families but there are things that have to be worked out along the way and if we aren't realistic about that it can set us up for a lot of disappointment
0: i think it's also really interesting to me when it comes to the authority figure in the sort of step family in the blended family sort of situation because some parents don't have like they already have two sets of parents in a way and then you bring on this other person as a third authority figure, and that can be one too many, uh, one too many people raising the kids. So it's like trying to understand where the step parent fits into all that is something that I think we don't really have a huge understanding on. That's exactly
1: right. I mean, the. Role of a step parent is ambiguous. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly what a, what it means to be a good step parent. If you ask people, what does it mean to be a good parent? What does it mean to be a good mother? What does it mean to be a good father? People will generally have a lot of consensus about what that looks like or what it it should look like. Mm-hmm. But if you ask people, what does it mean to be a good stepmother? What does it mean to be a good stepfather? Um, there's less consensus on what that looks like, and so the ambiguity of that role can be stressful for step parents who aren't really sure of how to do it well. And in their uncertainty, they might reach for models that are reminiscent of nuclear family models. So what I mean is, I don't know what it means to be a good stepfather. So I'm just going to act like a father because that's a model that I'm familiar with, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, if you approach it that way, it can cause a lot of friction in terms of disciplining and who has authority to do that. And um, the step-parent role is different. And so the the lack of clarity, you know, there's no manual. There aren't guidelines for how to do it well. And so a lot of step-parents are kind of figuring it out along the way and stumbling along the way because we don't have, um, we don't have a lot of clarity and consensus about what these roles should look like, which is why it's so important for couples before they remarry to talk about what they both expect it to look like so that they're on the same page about that moving forward.
0: No, I, I think it's, I think the communication is very, very something that is needed, especially in the second marriage with all that many different ways of handling situations that they've learned from the first relationship um so other than that what are some other key elements that can sort of strengthen the relationship in a particularly in a second marriage yeah great question
1: first i'll just punctuate again having realistic expectations um i think that there are a lot of myths and stereotypes that can set us up for disappointment. So I think the two biggest myths or misconceptions about what step-family life could look like is that either step-families should be just like first married families or step-families are really dysfunctional, right? The stereotype of the wicked stepmother, the evil stepmother, um, horrible stepfathers, right? The, there's a, an idea that step-families are either perfectly functional or very dysfunctional. And of course, often it's somewhere, it's it's no different from any other, you know, family dynamic where there are challenges and of course there are also successes. And so I think that um, the idea that you'll approach it or that it will go very, very smoothly that, oh, because we've fallen in love with each other, all of our kids will get along and your kids will love me and my kids will love you and, Um, the myth of instant love, and I think this is especially a myth that we think women should live up to in terms of maternal love, like for a stepmother to love her stepchildren instantly and immediately, is very unrealistic. And you know, relationships take time. Step parents should befriend their stepchildren first, um, get to know them first and love, love comes later. So I think that the unrealistic expectations can create a lot of stress. So that's the first thing I would recommend for couples is to have realistic expectations, that um, love takes time, relationships take time, and, and it doesn't have to be picture-perfect from the outset. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I would certainly recommend talking about parenting expectations for all the reasons that I said. There's a lot of research on this. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that when couples talk about it, First of all, there's a lot of research that most couples don't, but that when they do um, and when they reach consensus, they are less likely to divorce. So being on the same page is so important. So talking, communicating about those expectations is critical. Um, Discipline is worth punctuating also just because it tends to come up in step family research so often. Research shows that child development and that step family functioning is best when biological parents continue to be the primary disciplinarian, right? Especially early in step-family formation and especially um, for adolescents. And even as step-parents gradually become more involved in the co-parenting system over time, Generally, step families operate best when biological parents are supported by step parents in their disciplinary decisions, but that they are the captain um, of, of those decisions. Another really important thing for folks to remember if they're forming a step family is to spend one on one time with. that all relationships need one-on-one time and to especially spend one-on-one time with children. Mm -hmm. Children whose parents are remarrying often have fears about what this new stepparent means in terms of the loss of their relationship with their parent, the loss of their one-on-one time with their parent, especially if they were living with their parent in a single-parent household before uh, the remarriage; those relationships likely became very close, right? And so, the introduction of a step parent can be hard for kids because they feel like they're losing something, and and there's a lot of fear and uncertainty about how this new person is going to disrupt the parent child relationship. And so, parents often, understandably, are so eager for their kids to bond with the person that they've fallen in love with. Right. And so they want to do everything together and they want to do it as a family. And that that's wonderful. And that should happen. But if it doesn't happen alongside carving out special one-on-one time with children, then children are less likely to be receptive to this new step-parent figure. So it is so important that parents continue to prioritize the maintenance of their relationships with their kids who don't feel lost in the shuffle of this new step-family forming. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course, it's also important research shows to spend time together as a step-family. One-on-one time is important. Together time also is important. Um, There's research, for example, that shared meals can really build a sense of stepfamily cohesion. So the more nights per week that um, stepfamilies have shared family meals, the more positive outcomes that um, children experience in stepfamilies. And so it's a balance of prioritizing all these individual relationships and prioritizing time spent together as a stepfamily.
0: It's very interesting how you have to try to balance like especially when it comes to the for example the biological father who's having to deal with the new partner and then as well as the previous uh, relationships children that comes from there as well. Um, I think for me I really relate this to the second Enchanted movie that came out very recently. It's it's very much related to that, in a sense, of the the re- new relationship also has a new child that's sort of come from that come from there, which left the stepchild very um, insecure in her own relationship with the rest of the family. So it's very it's very interesting just how much we don't realize how it impacts, especially children from a first marriage. like cool. the relationship, with the original father, with the biological father, is just as important as trying to build a relationship with the mother as well, with the new stepmother.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's such a great example of the birth of a shared child in the stepfamily, right? A Mm -hmm. child between parent and step-parent, so often because it's a joyous time and You know, that can be true. And also children, even if they're happy about that, can struggle with what that means for their place in the family. And so often, parents who are really well-intentioned forget to check in with their kids about how they're feeling amid all of these changes. Mm -hmm. And it's no different from parenting in any other context that asking children how they're doing, checking in with them, sitting down with them and and really talking and getting on their level and asking, right? How are you feeling about this? And what's going on for you? And are you scared about anything? And right, telling children, sometimes I struggle with change. And here's an example of that. What about you, right? Like, it's so important to connect with kids on just that human level um, for them to adjust well to all of these changes. And sometimes we just forget, parents forget how to model that, how to really model open communication, checking in with kids um, because, and, and also I suppose to normalize complicated emotions because often children are possibly excited for their parent, you know, excited for this new sibling and also have a lot of other feelings about about that. And so normalizing that it's okay, that feeling sad, feeling a sense of loss, Feeling scared doesn't take away from any other positive emotions that, that children might also be feeling. So I think there's so much to be said for just normalizing
0: the complicatedness, the messiness of, of, of these transitions. Yeah. And so now we're going to talk a bit more about some of the myths and misconceptions that come about in a second marriage. So what do you think are some of the most common um, misconceptions that occur.
1: yeah, I think that certainly the myth of instant love, right? The myth that everyone should love each other easily and immediately um, is a big one. Love takes time <laughs> always. That's no different in step families than in any other context. Um, and so I think the pressure to to love each other, right away to call each other family labels right um to call my new step-grandmother grandma right or to call my new step-mom mom whatever that might look like that pressure to reconfigure as a first married nuclear family the idea that we should instantly love each other um is a myth it doesn't work that way it doesn't work that way and so i think that dispelling that myth can take a lot of pressure off, off families because the reality is that these relationships do take time they take time and all the research suggests that relationships do become better over time the first five years of, of remarriage or step family formation tend to be the most stressful and so a lot of step families that dissolve because the remarriage ends in divorce it tends to happen within those first five years um from there, relationships do tend to become closer. And so I think dispelling the myth of instant love is incredibly important. Um, and then also the flip side of that coin the myth of dysfunctionality, the myth of the evil step parent. Um, there are real consequences that those myths can have. A lot of my work um, on stepmotherhood and talking with step parents about their experiences and especially stepmothers suggests that they're incredibly reluctant to share some feelings that are incredibly normal, any challenges that they're experiencing in stepfamily life, they might be reluctant to talk about out of fear of reinforcing these negative stereotypes, such as the stereotype of the the evil stepmother, right? And Mm -hmm. so those negative stereotypes or myths can also um, make people really reluctant to be honest and open and to normalize the difficulty of some of these circumstances while also celebrating everything that they're grateful for and that they cherish about their families. Mm -hmm.
0: And so now like talking about the evil stepmother and all of that, why is it such a focus on the evil stepmother and not more on like a negative impact of what a stepfather would look like?
1: Interesting question. Um, Interestingly, I mean, certainly many of us are familiar with the uh, fairy tales that portray an evil stepmother, right? So a lot of it comes from that. But interestingly, um, most of those fairy tales in their original renditions featured biological mothers as the antagonist. And then in the 18th century, there was a concerted effort to kind of restore the sacred image of motherhood. Mm -hmm. And so all of these evil moms were turned into evil stepmoms. (laughs) Um, wow. Yeah, the original rendition of Snow White um, has the antagonist being a biological mother. And then again, that's transformed into a stepmother. So there are some... Certainly, I think that those fairy tales that we're familiar with through Disney or what have you, um, have over time contributed to certainly the, the idea of a wicked stepmother. Um, I think that women in particular, I think that stepmothers in particular are at the intersection of very complicated expectations in terms of how to be a stepmom. So what I mean by that is Women are generally expected to be highly involved in families, right? Women as kinkeepers, women as maternal figures, women as nurturers. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, women are expected to be highly involved. And then on the other hand, stepmothers as a step parent are expected to be less involved. And so they're expected to be both highly involved as women and step in step families, but simultaneously less involved as a step parent. And so that can create a really tricky set of expectations in terms of how to best enact their role as stepmoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think the gendered dynamics and the complexity of women's roles and in, in families in particular has put stepmothers in a really interesting spot. Not to suggest that being a stepfather is a cakewalk. I don't <laughs> think that that's true. <laughs> but I do think that the um, stereotypes attached to stepmoms warrant, um, warrant special attention. Mm-hmm
0: i think especially when it comes to i think we we referenced uh, stepmom the movie earlier um the way that the children view julie roberts character was very much like oh it's an evil stepmother it's uh it's everything negative about it when she's really trying so hard to be able to fit into those kids lives um it's very interesting how they portray that
1: absolutely And she is trying so hard to to walk that (laughs) fine line Mm and being involved, but not overstepping, right? A lot of stepmothers describe the experience of they're supposed to do all these things, but not overstep. They're not supposed to infringe upon the mother's role, for example. And I think that some of these dynamics come from the ideologies of motherhood that, that culturally we tend to embody. So for example, the primacy of mother's roles and families, right? This is like a very heteronormative family image, but the idea that families should have, that children should have, they have one mother, right? They have one mother and this one woman is expected to be all of these things. Mm -hmm. You think about the negative stereotypes of stepmoms. We have very opposite stereotypes of biological maternity, which is like the super mom, the revered super mom who can do everything and is involved and is maybe a working mom, but she's still unconditionally there and, and supportive and loving. Um, She does it all. And I think that because we place so much emphasis on mother's roles, then the introduction of a stepmother can create a lot of friction because we have been taught to believe that there is one mother figure And how do you create space then for another maternal figure in families? Mm -hmm. Um, The movie Stepmom is a great example of the mom really struggling with that. And there's a lot of emotion work that she's doing to create space for this new woman in her children's lives. But I think that's hard for moms to do because we have been taught that they should be it all, that they should embody everything, which makes it
0: difficult for stepmothers to figure
1: out their role in the family.
0: No, 100%. And that relation that whole movie really described it so well for me um especially in a way that is very uh spoken about all different parts that are dealing with it yeah
1: yeah it really does it covers so many different um facets of not only remarriage but divorce um something you know that we haven't hit on yet, but that is true in terms of how remarriages differ from first marriages, is that family members are sometimes carrying emotional baggage from everything they went through in the divorce that they experienced. And so there can be scars that haven't healed, perhaps, right? Wounds that haven't healed that um, contribute to all of these complicated feelings involved in step families. Um, and so you get some of that in the movie Stepmom, which is wonderful. You know, there, you get a sense that there are some unhealed wounds. And so how does that play into, uh,
0: all the feelings involved in, in remarrying? It's Mm -hmm. complicated. Yeah, no, it is really complicated. So talking about sort of emotional baggage towards it, how important is seeking outside support or even counseling for couples who are entering that second marriage? Oh, I
1: think that um I mean I certainly think that um helping professionals who work with step families are incredible in in the perspectives that they can offer and the guidance that they can um that they can bestow upon families who are navigating these unmapped terrain. Mm-hmm. Um I do think that we don't necessarily need to—and this is something that we can also benefit from in therapy—we don't necessarily have to resolve the issues in order to create satisfying step-family dynamics. And so here's what I mean by that. There are research studies that—there's one in particular that used a national sample of Canadian adults and followed them over a period of 20 years. And they looked at which step couples or remarried couples were most likely to divorce after the 20 year period. And they had them identify the challenge that was most stressful in their step families. And they had both members of the couple identify the most challenging stressor. And then they looked at whether both members of the couple were on the same page about what was most challenging. So what they found was that the couples who were most likely to divorce, that had nothing to do with the actual stressor that they identified. So their likelihood of divorce was not predicted by what they identified as being most stressful. It wasn't even predicted by the severity of that stressor. So if they rated it a five out of a 10 or a 10 out of a 10. What was most predictive of whether or not they divorced was whether or not the couple was on the same page about which stressor was their most serious stressor. Mm -hmm. So just consensus, even without it being resolved, saying that we are on the same page about this thing being stressful was what protected them from divorce the most. And so thinking about therapy, um, we don't necessarily have to resolve everything that's stressful about step family life in order to be happy in our marriages. But even just being on the same page, validating each other and saying, yes, this is really stressful and we're we're in it together. And, and reaching consensus about that protected them in terms of their risk of divorce. Mm -hmm. Um, So therapy can be beneficial for a range of, you know, so many reasons. Um, But what I would say to couples is that, Therapy isn't only effective insofar as you resolve the stressor. Being on the same page about the stressor being stressful Mm -hmm. is also
0: really beneficial for your marriage. And it must be really really important, especially with dealing with so much of your past understanding and past understanding of yourself in a relationship. Because usually, like when you talk about divorce, there's usually something that sort of underlies it. So uh, trying to understand why that is or what that was, I think, would also be a very important thing to bring on to a second marriage.
1: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we are shaped by our pasts, right? And so what we've been through in a first marriage or divorce... Um, affects us and affects our second marriages or subsequent marriages in ways that we're not always privy to. It can happen at a subconscious level. And so certainly therapy or clinical perspectives can help bring those undercurrents to the surface so that you can really deal with them. Perfect.
0: So now we're going into the practice and habit part of the show. Um, So talking about your own practices, what is a practice that you do what you, that you go through to sort of improve your relationship in a marriage? There are studies to suggest
1: that having a one once a week check-in, what you might call the state of, similar to the state of the union, which happens annually, for instance, in the U.S., the state of the relationship is like a once a week check-in about how your relationship is going. So for example, on a Sunday evening, checking in with your spouse about how things are going in the marriage, right? And and really talking about um, the stressors that we're facing, how we're feeling about those stressors, um, but giving protected time, giving a space, really designating a time to talk about it. Otherwise, so much can become swept under the rug and especially for remarried couples who might have a lot of competing demands on their time, right? They're raising kids and uh, their own kids and stepkids, and there's so much to attend to. It's really important to protect time, to set aside time to check in mm-hmm. um, about the marriage. And so, how talking about how things are going um, and doing that regularly is is critical. I mean, open communication is so key. And in those conversations, I would say that the most important thing, one of my favorite quotes about communication, which I we talk, I talk about with my students, is that the greatest communication problem is that we don't listen to understand. We listen to reply. So when our partner's talking, we're thinking about how we're going to respond, right? Yeah. We're thinking about what we're going to say in response to that, as opposed to truly listening to understand what our partner is saying, which means being curious about their perspective, asking follow-up questions, right? We're really trying to get to the heart of what they're experiencing and thinking and feeling before we're thinking about our own reply um, to what our partner is sharing, to the extent that we can listen to understand as opposed to listening to reply, then we both understand each other more deeply. And so often what we need when we're experiencing some difficulty is not even to solve it. In fact, most relationship researchers um, agree that the vast majority of conflict in relationships is not solvable, which isn't to say that people should run or that something's (laughs) wrong. Mm -hmm. It's to normalize that human beings are complicated and most of our differences we just learn to live with, as opposed to actually solving them. And I think that really frees us to not necessarily always be hyper-focused on fixing it, but instead to be hyper-focused on understanding each other's perspective. That even if we can't resolve this issue, hearing each other, validating each other, um, even if we disagree, perhaps especially when we disagree, To say, I understand where you're coming from. I I get it, right? And to really ask questions that help us understand each other's perspective. Um, So listening to understand, validating differing perspectives is so critical in relationships.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think it's also really interesting because when you talk about, like we always listen to replies. So it's like it becomes an interview. Well, like we find one thing that's interesting and we focus on that until it's our turn to speak, and that's what we talk about. Right, oh,
1: that's such a great, oh, and I do qualitative research for my, um, for my profession, and so I'm interviewing research participants constantly, mm-hmm. and you're right, I mean, it, we often have an interview protocol when I'm conducting an interview with a participant, and there are certain questions I wanna get to, but to the extent that I can suspend my preconceived map and just be with my participant and follow where they go. Um, I've never drawn that connection, but you're absolutely right that that's exactly the same in relationships, right? That in relationships, um, instead of trying to hit on the items in our agenda, instead to listen to our partner and and go down unexpected paths. And what's critical is that both partners are willing to do that. Because of course, if one does that and the other doesn't, I wouldn't call that a healthy relationship. But um, but yeah, I think that's a a, beautiful metaphor for for what that looks like in relationships.
0: Well, it's it's perfect. Um, so how do you think that this practice and this sort of like weekly check-in practice, how do you think that it improves um, family life as well as sort of life in general? Mm.
1: Yeah, well, it certainly, I think, improves family life and that it fosters more open communication. Mm-hmm. Um, in families with children, couples set the stage for the family dynamics that trickle down to kids. Um, and so, to the extent that spouses are communicating openly, um, they're more likely to then do that with their children. And children are more likely to communicate openly with parents. Um, certainly, open communication is a signpost of you know healthy dynamics often in families, um, and not just on a family level, but how does it improve life in general? Um, I like the second part of that question because I think that when we are curious about what our partners are sharing with us, when we are truly open and receptive um, to what other people and our families and our relationships are bringing forward, when we are practicing that openness, that receptivity, I think that spills over into all areas of, of our lives, right? And I, I just think there's great value in being, um, incredibly curious about ourselves and each other and the world around us and staying open to, um, to everything that unfolds to us and not to the extent that we cannot attach preconceived notions or, or preconceived judgments of, what our partners are saying or feeling or thinking or things that we're going through but to truly stay open and curious i think helps us uh, move through life but certainly also our families much more gracefully
0: it's it's very interesting how you how you say it and is sort of a life sense because i always love that part of the question as well and how each sort of different practice really helps in how we go through our daily life so I always love hearing the different definitions and the different ways people, um, a lot of the guests take that. And that's why it's probably my favorite question to ask out of the whole show. And it's, it's so varying depending on the, on the practice that takes place. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. Um, so the next part of the, of the show is going through the questions from audience members that have been sent through to us. So the first question is, how do I make sure the issues from my first marriage aren't repeated into my second? Oh, great question.
1: Being aware of what those issues are Mm -hmm. is first and foremost key, right? Um, so I think having your thumb on the pulse of the things that you don't want to repeat in a second marriage is, um is absolutely critical. I mean, it doesn't mean necessarily that we won't subconsciously repeat some dynamics that we've learned. Um, You know, just like we learn anything else in life, how we learn to communicate with partners, how we learn to engage in conflict, um, those are habits that we learn through repetition. And so it takes practice to unlearn those habits so that we can learn new habits in a second relationship or a second marriage, right? And so I think first, being critically aware of what it is that you want to unlearn or not repeat. Um, But second, of course, is making conscious efforts um, to, to practice those habits differently. Uh, which requires a lot of self-awareness. And I and I do think that's certainly where therapy can um, be, be really helpful in, in sensitizing us and sort of getting a third perspective of things that we aren't ourselves aware that we're repeating, that we're doing again in a second marriage that we also might have done in our first. And so those outside perspectives can be, um, you know, incredibly helpful. Okay, perfect.
0: Um, next question is How do I prepare my kids for the new parent, which includes uh, stepchildren? Oh,
1: wonderful question. I first suggest that parents take their time in introducing a new dating partner to their kids, right? It can be difficult for children to become close to someone that their parent is dating just for them to break up and they no longer see that person. And then they become close to someone else and they break up, right? And that repeated cycle of becoming close to someone and then losing access to that person can be hard for kids. So first, I would recommend generally waiting to introduce children to new partners until you're pretty certain that that person is going to be around for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And even then, I recommend introducing that person very slowly, right? Depending on the ages of your kids, maybe they're just at the playground and this new person, you know, is there in a way that um, doesn't put too much pressure on the child and that new step-parent to bond, right? They're just kind of introduced slowly to the family. They're around, um, they, the children get to know who they are, but it's at a very slow, reasonable pace. Um, I, uh, I do recommend, you know, introducing someone as your fiance that you're going to, right. It should be, it should be yeah. a slow and easier whole process. Yeah. Um, so I think that that helps then with the preparation. So then when parents do say, right, hey, I'm engaged, or we're going to move in, or this person... Is going to be your step parent that that doesn't come as a shock to kids because they've already gotten to know this person slowly over time, and they've gotten to know this person as a friend, right? Step parents really, if they want to build the best relationships with kids, studies suggest that they should build a friendship with them and not step into a parental role, but the role of a friend, and um, so laying that groundwork is really critical in terms of, okay, we've been dating for a while, we're going to marry, and I'm preparing my kids now for that transition, for moving in with this person, um, for blending our families. Being as honest as possible in terms of what the changes are going to look like um, can really help alleviate, you know, children's anxieties. A lot of their anxiety comes from not knowing everything that are we moving into a new house? Am I going to have a room? And I, am I going to have to share a room? Is it going to change how often I'm seeing my other parent at my other household? Right. There's so many question marks that children, um, don't have the answers to. And sometimes parents might not have the answers to some of those questions either. And so to the extent that parents can be honest, right. Mm -hmm. And, and tell them the things that they know and the things that, that they're still figuring it out. And that, you know, um, that they'll continue to communicate about. I mean, being as honest as possible and normalizing children's concerns. Right? Um, it's okay for for kids to be sad <laughs> um, or or reluctant. Um, and parents, in their excitement, again, for their child to bond with their new partner, well-intentioned parents can sometimes be dismissive of um, of children's needs, and so you know. Um, I, I'm speaking from experience here with one of my parents' second marriages. I remember the, um, enthusiasm for which she really wanted us to bond with her, uh, with her new fiance. And, uh, there was a lot of pressure on accepting this person into the family instantly and, and immediately. And I think that, um, parents in their enthusiasm want their kids also to be enthusiastic. And so I think it's really okay for parents to, um, It's great for parents to normalize that, you know, this is hard and it's okay to be sad. And I feel sad sometimes too, right? I feel scared sometimes too about X, Y, and Z. Like parents can model vulnerability for their kids and say, you know, it's a right to feel unsure about all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, That's sometimes likely... To make kids feel even more receptive to the step parent, just to be told that it's okay if they don't always like this person, right? That then they might like that person even more. So kids just need to be told that you know all of the feelings that they're feeling are okay, Um, and and to the extent that parents can really check in with their kids about how they're feeling, can do wonders in terms of preparing kids for those transitions.
0: That's it's really interesting, and the final question. Um, This is a pretty big one. How do I negotiate with my former second spouse who still wants to be involved with the children even after I'm remarried to the third partner? Oh,
1: certainly if there are circumstances of um, circumstances That maybe led to the divorce that also led to custody arrangements where kids might have full custody with, you know, a parent and a step parent and not have much access to their other parent. If there are circumstances surrounding safety where that's the case, right, um, then it might be appropriate for children not to have, you know, as much access to that parent if it's unsafe for them. Most often, that's not the case. Most often, that's not the case. And children, you know, might have 50-50 custody or Um, see both of their parents at at different times. And children not feeling like they have to choose, like they have done something wrong by loving a step parent and also loving and wanting to be close to their biological parent is critical. Part of the problem of the nuclear family model is that then when parents remarry they think oh well i'm recreating a nuclear family we now have a two-parent family and this third parent in another household is no longer needed is no longer relevant children need access to the people that they're close with a a disruption to that relationship with their non-residential parent can be incredibly um damaging to them if if they lose access to a loving parent figure And so creating co-parenting systems that include parents across households, right? Including the non-residential parent in co-parenting helps children not feel caught in the middle. Like they have to choose. Um, Like they feel torn between their parents. Um, There's a gigantic body of literature on the phenomenon of bad-mouthing the other parent, right, or inappropriate disclosures to kids about their other parent. Mm -hmm. And not surprisingly, that can be incredibly harmful to kids' development when when a parent is talking badly about the other parent. I used to teach a divorce education class in Missouri um, in the U.S. for parents who were divorcing with minor-age children, and often parents would say, I just want to prepare my child because their other parent is going to let them down. And I don't want them to think, uh, you know, I don't want them to be hurt. And so I'm trying to tell them now. And children are very wise, first of all. They tend to learn on their own without parents' input what the truth of the situation is. Mm -hmm. Parents really don't need to further that along by bad the other parent um, it can make children ultimately less close to the parent who's doing the bad-mouthing because it's very uncomfortable for them to hear negative things about the other parent. So to the extent that parents can avoid shutting that third parent out and instead including them in the co-parenting system, mm-hmm. children benefit from that. They really do. Again, unless there are circumstances where that's unsafe and then that's another um, situation. But if that's not the case, then parents can do incredible things by modeling family complexity and embracing parenting figures across households.
0: I think it's very fascinating to me just how much we're needing to, um, like a lot of people, they also deal with their own sort of need to find a partner or to find a partner or like, dating and finding someone new after this first marriage. But then the kids are also still trying to understand as to a whole why that marriage didn't work out. So like there's that whole balance of trying to be there for your kid, but also trying to understand that you need to move on for you, that you deserve to find someone. So um, like, I honestly don't know how a lot of families are able to do it when it comes to balancing both of them and balancing the whole idea of moving on but still being in some sort of reminder that the first marriage even existed
1: oh absolutely and studies show that children do best when their parents are doing well right Mm -hmm. that children's well-being is connected to their parents well-being and so when parents stay in unhealthy marriages even if it's a first marriage nuclear family If there is a lot of conflict and parents are really unhappy, children are generally worse off if their parents don't divorce. Mm -hmm. If divorce is going to reduce children's exposure to conflict, then they are better off when their parents do separate, right? So parents' well-being is so critical. How well parents are doing, if parents are in healthy situations, then they're able to be better parents to their kids, right? Um, Even if that means leaving a first marriage and, um, and establishing, you know, a post-divorce family. Mm -hmm.
0: So now we're coming up to the open mic part of the show, the very last part, the very last segment. Um, I get you to talk about anything that you are either passionate about or a personal project that you are currently working on. Uh, so we have about less than five minutes. So I'll get you to have the floor and just be able to talking about anything that you wanted to share with the audience.
1: Sure, I am currently working on a project called Mother-Stepmother Allies and Father-Stepfather Allies. So I am doing joint interviews um, with moms and stepmoms in the same family and dads and stepdads in the same family. And I'm recruiting specifically for moms and stepmoms who get along um, or dads and stepdads who get along. And they are talking with me about the benefits of being friends with one another and not having animosity and um and just the advantages of establishing co-parenting systems across households that um that work well for everyone you know there's a lot of um the dominant narrative is that moms and stepmoms hate each other that they that they that they're in competition with one another that they shouldn't get along that there's jealousy that there's hurt feelings so all of the people i'm talking to are folks who get along and, um, and what it can look like to, um, to work together in, in the kids' best interest, because these are families who really have embraced their complexity. Um, I talked with a mom, stepmom Dyad last week, who they go on family vacations together, their whole family. Um, and they were (laughs) on a cruise in a hot tub and, Someone that they had just met said, oh, how do you guys know each other? And she said, oh, well, he's my ex-husband and that's his wife. And they were all friends. They're good friends. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's a project that really illustrates um, what's possible if if people can uh, resolve the hurt feelings that often are there. And... Um, and just decide that, you know, as one of my participants said, too many things in life are hard. I don't need my relationship with my ex to be hard. I don't want my relationship with his new wife to be hard. Um, It makes all of our lives easier for us to just be friends. And so they are, and they're not alone. There's lots of people who I've spoken with who really illustrate, like embody that, that um, really resilient step family model. And so uh, my work is really shining a light right now on what it can look like for families to to do this well and so i'm very excited about about that work
0: it sounds that sounds like a, it's negating so many stereotypes that come into place well, right right yes um
1: i think that i think that often we do work that focuses on the kids and i think that we should but i also think we have to do work that really understands the complexity of the emotions that parents are going through because there's so many hidden emotions that are complicated that are unresolved and that get in the way of healthy co-parenting after divorce and after remarriage and so what does it look like to just put all of that on the table and and deal with it and grapple with it and to come out stronger on the other side
0: well i would love to end that on a positive note and to show that there is so many different types of families that do have such a big positive way of going through life especially in this situation um thank you so much Caroline, for coming on and joining me and sharing a lot of information about the different ways that uh, remarriage and second marriages and third marriages can exist and just be positive um in in terms of how we perceive life as well thank you so much it was really my pleasure thank you Um, If there's any way that audience members would like to get in touch with you, is there a way that they are able to? Sure. I am on Twitter um,
1: at the handle Caroline underscore Sanner. Um, My email address is csanner at vt.edu. If folks are interested in hearing more about any of the research I've talked about, I'd be really happy to connect them um, with resources. So um, those are probably the best, the best ways to reach me.
0: Okay, perfect. Well, um, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. And if you want any more information, everything will be in the link below, including um, the handle for Instagram, as well as her email uh, for Caroline as well. Um, yeah, follow us uh, if you want any new episodes that are coming up. We're talking about so many different things that it's I can barely keep up as to what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening, guys. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. You've been listening to Altogether, the Family Science Insights podcast produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.